So my weekend started out great because on Friday night, I actually went to go see the new Guardians of the Galaxy movie, which... Yeah. Just show of hands, how many of you have seen the Guardians of the new... Okay, if you have... If you've not yet seen this movie, your life has been impoverished. You know, um, I, I like the Marvel movies. I especially like the Guardians of the Galaxy movie. In fact, this was probably my favorite of the Guardians of the Galaxy movie. And it, it tells the backstory of one of the core characters, uh, Rocket, who's the little raccoon, Rocket the raccoon. And, you know, when I go to see a movie, and I think you probably feel like this, oftentimes I go to see a movie for a few different reasons. Uh, sometimes I just want to be entertained and I just want to forget. And this last week, I kind of had a long week, and I just wanted to go and kind of be entertained. And sometimes you go, you know, you, you, you've heard about something from a friend, and they said, oh, this one will make you laugh, and it'll make you cry. And Guardians of the Galaxy, it did make me laugh, and it did make me cry. And, um, and, and, and we go to movies, I think, for a variety of different reasons. But one of the reasons I don't typically go to a movie is in order to meet the deepest thirst in the human soul. And I was thinking that oftentimes, I think a lot of us go to church for a lot of different reasons. Uh, some of us come here maybe out of guilt. Uh, you've been pressured. You've been coerced by somebody. I'll buy you breakfast if you just go to church. Uh, maybe you were invited by a friend. You don't even know why you're here. They just invited you, and here you are. Uh, some of us come here uh, to learn and to grow. And some of us come here maybe just to escape. You know, reality seems a little bit painful, so we come into this space. It helps us to come in to a known and comfortable environment. Uh, we see people we love and who love us and care for us, and we come in uh, to, to kind of meet that social need. But I want to suggest that there is a more profound reason why we gather together in the presence of God, and it is actually to engage in this interface between the deep, thirst in the human soul and the true and living God. And this morning, we're going to look together at a passage of scripture that I think invites us into that interface where Jesus invites us to consider, to, to, to maybe think afresh about the deep thirst that exists in our own soul and how this soul can be met in the presence of the living God. Now, We've mentioned multiple times already that today is Pentecost Sunday, and over the last few years on Pentecost Sunday, I've spent time in Acts 2, which actually tells the story of Pentecost. But what I want to do today is I want to invite you to look at a little passage in the Gospel of John where Jesus is talking about our own spiritual thirst, how the Spirit of God meets that thirst, and actually in this passage, he gives a little, a, a little um, reference to the day of Pentecost. And it's interesting what he says about it. And this text picks up in John chapter 7, verse 37. And look what it says. It says, on the last day of the feast, the great day. Now stop there because to really understand what Jesus is going to say, how he talks to us about how our spiritual thirst can be met in the true and living God. In order to understand what Jesus is saying in our text, we have to set it in its broader context and setting. Uh, it says that Jesus spoke these words on the last day of the feast, uh, the, the great feast, the great day of the feast, the very last day. And we're like, well, what feast is Jesus attending? So there are three main feasts in the Jewish calendar. 
And in the first century, Jews on each one of these feast days, they would typically travel as pilgrims into the city of Jerusalem. And the first feast was the feast of Passover. The second was the feast of Pentecost. And the third is the feast of this, uh, in this text, which is the feast of booths. Now there's going to be a test, so make sure you're taking notes. Guys, come on, you guys, just stick with me on the feasts. So the feasts followed both the harvest calendar uh, for the ancient Israelites. It was an agricultural society. And so the feast of Passover would be a feast of the first fruits. So it was when the very first kind of grain harvest would come, they would bring those in and celebrate that. The feast of Pentecost was after the full harvest would come in. They would gather and uh, it was the full wheat harvest. And both of those feasts were done in the spring. But the third feast, the feast of booths or tabernacles uh, was when you brought in not only the full wheat harvest, but also the harvest of the olives and the grapes. And the grapes meant what? Wine. Wine. You know, this was a celebratory feast. And these three feasts, Passover, Pentecost, and the feasts of uh, booths or tabernacles, uh, also called to mind three great events in Israel's history. The Exodus, that was Passover. Uh, the, the giving of the law at Mount Sinai, that was Pentecost. And then the children of Israel's wandering in the wilderness, and that was the Feast of Booths. Now, the ancient historian Josephus tells us that of the three feasts, the most popular, the most celebrated, uh, the one where more people came into Jerusalem than any other feast, the favorite feast among the people was the Feast of of, of tabernacles, of booths. It was this feast because this was the day when they would just, it was celebratory. It lasted uh, eight days and it was eight days of, uh, you know, you're eating together, you're drinking, you're singing, you're dancing, you're, you're learning. They're in the temple courts. And it was just a spectacular, lengthy, celebratory feast. And one of the sub-themes of this feast, get this, was water. Because uh, on the Feast of Tabernacles, again, they remembered the wilderness wanderings, and so they would actually build these little makeshift booths uh, out of sticks or whatever, you know, and they would kind of live underneath these makeshift shelters, remembering that when the Israelites were wandering in the wilderness, they would have to live in little tents and booths. Uh, but they, they would call to mind water because, well, for a few reasons. First, because it was in the wilderness in that dry and barren wilderness that God provided water. Uh, he provided water from the rock. Uh, he made the bitter water sweet so that they could drink it. He sustained the people's thirst in the wilderness with water. And at the Feast of Tabernacles, they would call to mind, they would call to memory God's provision of water, but not just water in the wilderness. They would call to mind God's provision of water in the last season, because they're in an arid climate, in order to have their crops in this great harvest festival, they needed what? Rain. They needed water. And so they gathered to remember and to celebrate God giving rain and giving his people water. 
And they also were not just, uh, water was not just an issue of memory for the children of Israel at Tabernacles. It was also an aspect of their hope. They would look to the future for God's future provision of water in the next season. Uh, They would ask for God to bring water, but they would also call to mind God's great promise that the day would come in the future when uh, there would be springs of water that would break out in the wilderness and that there would be renewal, not just over an arid, dry piece of land that needed crops, but over the dry and barren places in God's creation. And they looked for and they hoped for a great outpouring of, of water, as it were, spiritual water, metaphorical water. And get this, during this festival, each day of the, uh, of the festival, this lengthy eight-day festival, each day they had a special water ritual that they would uh, practice. And what would happen is this, is the high priest uh, would go down to the pool of Siloam, which was just outside of the temple. They'd walk down to the pool of Siloam, and they'd take this great golden pitcher, and they would fill it up with water. And the high priest would carry it back into the temple courts, and uh, the pilgrims who had come to Jerusalem to worship would follow them. And as they followed, they would sing uh, the Psalms, uh, Psalms 113 to 118, called the Hallel Psalms, and they would, uh, they would dance, and uh, they would wave these branches. Sometimes they'd wave citrus fruit in the air, you know. Let's just try that. Can you guys just try waving citrus? Wave it in the air like you just don't care. Anyway, they, they would wave these branches and the, the priest, following this priest, so imagine, I mean, the singing and, the, and then the, the guys who had the shofars, which were the joyful trumpets, they would blow them as they would go and they're just big thing, you know, this big celebration, they carry the pitcher of water and then they would take the water and the priest would pour it out in front of the altar in the temple. And then the water would run down from the temple on its way out. And in a symbolic way, they were reenacting. They were stirring their memory of and their hope in a day prophesied in the prophets when, when, get this, a, a river like a torrent of water would flow out from the very temple of God. And there was this promise in Zechariah, and it was repeated in the book of Joel, uh, that, that the temple of the Lord, from the temple of the Lord, a river would stream forth that would bring life to all of God's barren, dry creation. And probably the most palpable, the most memorable, uh, the most vivid of, of, of portraits of this day when the temple, from the temple, water would flow, came from the prophet Ezekiel. And in the prophet Ezekiel, it said this, He said, then he brought me to the entrance of the temple. Ezekiel here is envisioning a new temple. And there was water flowing from below the threshold of the temple. Even as the the golden pitcher would be poured out day after day after day in the tabernacle, and they'd see the water pulled out and, 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 and flowing down. He said, the water would flow out from below the threshold of the temple. And when it enters the sea, the water will become fresh. And wherever the river goes, every living creature that swarms will live. And everything will live where the river goes. And on the banks and on both sides of the river, there will grow all kinds of trees for food and they will bear fresh fruit because the water for them flows from the sanctuary. So do you see what this this 
image is giving us is this day when from the temple, which is where the, the presence of God dwelt, there would flow this great river, and it's a symbolic river. It is saying that that which brings life to dry and barren wilderness will flood all of dry and barren creation. The very life and presence of God will come and he will bring fertility, uh, he will bring newness, he will bring new fruitfulness in places, maybe personally or relationally or throughout the world where there had been brokenness and pain and suffering and dryness because humanity had turned their back from God and had turned to themselves. God says the day will come when the temple, from this temple will flow this great river of water. And so here, get this, on the greatest of feasts, on the last and on the greatest day of the greatest of feasts, Jesus stands up in the temple courts. Now, one more thing. Up to this point, Jesus had remained kind of in the shadows throughout this feast. In fact, uh, in, in the opening of the chapter, in John 7, verse 1, it tells us that Jesus' brothers decided to go to this feast. They're like, hey, Jesus, you want to come with us? You know, you're the Messiah. Aren't you come? Why don't you come and, and have a coming out party at the feast? And Jesus is like, no, I'm not going to go with you guys. And it says because he knew that he was a wanted man, and at the feast, there were people who wanted to kill him. And so after his brothers left, it said that Jesus went stealthily to the temple. And he kind of, in a hidden way, went to the temple, and he hung back, and then in the middle of the, in the, middle of the feast, uh, he got up and started teaching in the temple courts, and he started saying some really harsh things, and people got alarmed. And then he kind of fades back into the shadows again. But now people at this feast are on edge. They know he's around. They don't know where he's at. He came out before. He was teaching, troubling people. And, and now at this very intense moment, Jesus stands up at this feast. And by the way, this ritual of taking the water and pouring it out, it happened each day of the seven days but on the eighth day, they didn't do this, uh, they didn't do the ritual of the pouring out of the water. And I can imagine that at this moment, where the water would normally have been poured out on those other seven days, now Jesus stands up and he cries out and he says this, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Jesus says, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Now, what is Jesus doing in this moment? I want to suggest that Jesus is doing at least three things with this stunning, radical proclamation. I want to suggest that, number one, Jesus is saying something extraordinarily controversial in this moment about himself. And what is he saying? Uh, listen, this is a bit of a technical detail, uh, so some of the engineers and scientists will like this little technical detail. It's like a technical, textual detail. Uh, but for many of you, you're, you're not into the, the technical details, but you do love art. And so, <laughs> so there is this question in the text about uh, whether or not what Jesus says next. He says, let anyone, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. And then it says, for whoever believes on me, out of his heart will flow torrents or a river of living water. 
And there's a question in the text, from whose heart does the torrents of living water flow? And one option is, is that um, the, the torrents of living water, which is, do you guys see the little heart down there? And what's coming out of that are torrents of living water. It comes out of the heart of the person who believes in and who trusts in and who goes to Jesus to drink and to find their spiritual thirst satiated. From their heart will flow torrents of living water. And about half the commentators think that that's what the text is saying. But the other half say that actually, no, it's not from the heart of the drinker that the torrents of living waters come. Actually, option two is that it's actually from the heart of Jesus that the torrents of living water come. In fact, there's an alternate translation of the text. Uh, It's in the footnotes if you have an English standard version, but it's in the footnotes, and it goes like this. It says, on the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and let him who believes in me drink. Let him come to me who is thirsty And let the one who trusts in me, let him come and drink. And then it follows, for out of his heart, speaking of Jesus, you'll come to him and drink because out of his heart will flow torrents of living water. Now, let me just boil down kind of the the bottom line. Jesus, I think in our text, is saying, option two, I think he's saying that he is the source of the rivers of God's spirit that bring life to the barren places in our hearts and lives and in creation. And I think he's saying that if you want to have your, your, your thirst satiated by these waters, you need to come to him. And the reason why this is incredibly controversial is because throughout the Old Testament, in the prophetic literature, it was envisioned that the torrents of living water, the source of the, the life-giving spirit of God would be the very temple of God, where the presence of God resided. But in John's gospel, John is anxious to point out that Jesus himself is the new temple. He is the one in whom the very presence of God has come flesh among us. In, you know, the word became flesh and tabernacled, became the the very temple of God among us. And so Jesus is saying, it's from me, the spirit will be poured out. So Jesus, number one, is saying something about himself. He is saying that he is the source. Or in the classic language of the creeds, the, the spirit proceeds from both the father and from the son. The Spirit is poured out from the Father and the Son. And so from the triune God, God is pouring out his very self to be among his creation. This leads us to our second point, I think, that Jesus is making. Not only is Jesus saying something controversial about himself in our text, secondly, Jesus is saying something radical about human history. I don't always think we we, we reckon with just the extremity of what the claims of Jesus are. Jesus is saying, of course, something about himself. He is not just another prophet. He is not just simply a good man. Jesus is the God man. He is the one who God has become flesh and dwelt among us in. And it is from him that the source of God's life will be found. But he's saying something else. Jesus is saying in our text, 
something about human history that the day is coming when the spirit of God, the very personal presence of God will be poured out among us. And he puts it like this. This is uh, John's commentary on this little passage. John says this. Now Jesus said this about the spirit whom those who believed in him were to receive. For as yet, the spirit had not yet been given because Jesus was not yet glorified. He's making a very specific historical claim. He's saying that the life-giving presence of God that renews the barren places in our life to this point had not yet been poured out in its fullness. Why? He says, because Jesus had not yet gone through his suffering, his passion, his crucifixion, his resurrection from the dead, and his ascension to the right hand of the Father. And when he moved through his passion, when he moved into the grave and out the other side, and he ascended to the Father's right hand, then he would pour out his spirit, and this is the day of Pentecost. It is the day when the risen and ascended Christ pours out his spirit on all flesh. And throughout the Gospel of John, Jesus would say these things. He would say things like, um, you know, his disciples are incredibly freaked out because Jesus is like, I'm going to leave. I'm going away. And they're like, what do you mean you're going? We need you here. Don't leave us. And he's like, no, no, you guys, you guys, you don't understand. I am going to ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever, even the spirit of truth. And then he'll say things like, nevertheless, he says, it's to your advantage that I go away, for if I do not go away, the spirit will not come to you, but if I go, I will send him to you. And that promise of Jesus, those words of Jesus are they're fulfilled on the day of Pentecost when the Spirit of God is poured out on all flesh according to the promise of Joel. The giver of life has come. You know, the Nicene Creed refers to the Holy Spirit as, quote, the Lord and the giver of life. And Jesus said in John 6, the Spirit gives life. It is the very living presence of God that moves into the barren places of your life that actually makes you come alive. And the reason why God can come into our life in a fresh and new way on the day of Pentecost is because Christ has borne in his own body our sin, our darkness, and everything that kept us from the very personal presence of God, the blockage of sin and darkness and death. And Jesus goes to the cross in order to do battle against all of the powers of darkness, to bear in his life our own sin and our own brokenness and bring it to an end so that now, because he has been raised and ascended to the Father's right hand, a way can be made where you can engage with the very personal presence of God. And that has happened. That movement has come, which means this, friends, we are in a new era of human history. The kingdom of God has broken into this world in Jesus The spirit of God has been poured out. We inhabit a reality where we through Christ can approach the very presence of the living God and can 
can be near to, to the very presence of the Spirit of God because Christ has come and dealt with that which would prevent us from engaging in relationship with him. And so number one, Jesus in our text, when he says, if anyone thirsts, come to me and drink, he is number one, making a controversial statement about himself. He is saying that I am the very embodiment of God among us. I am the new temple and it is from me that the very life-giving presence of God will flow into creation. And he is saying something radical about human history. He's saying that a new day has dawned, that the doors have been opened up and the way has been open for us to engage in relationship with God. But thirdly and finally, Jesus in our text is saying something very hopeful to the thirsty. I can still remember when I was in high school watching an interview with one of my favorite surfers at the time whose name was Joey Baran. He was a professional surfer. They called him the California kid because he came from California. And, uh, and I, I remember he... he, he at one point in his life, he, he won the Pipeline Masters, which is basically the pinnacle of professional surfing. And he, he, he shared in this interview about where he was at at that time in his life. He said, you know, he goes, he said, for, for my whole, like growing up, he says, I used to watch the Pipe Masters and I always was, I dreamed of, of competing in the Pipe Masters. And then I dreamed of winning the Pipe Masters. And then he said, and then finally he says, I won the Pipe Masters. And it was a macking, you know, pipe. It was like, you know, crazy, massive, scary pipe. And here this kid from California came and knocked out all the Hawaiians and took the Pipe Masters. And he said he stood on that stage. And he said they handed him the trophy, you know, and he held it up. And he said, and he was like, I won the pipe. I won the pipe. And then he said this rain squall came. And he said, if you've ever been to a rain squall in California or in Hawaii, he says, people just bail the beach. And he says, everyone left. And then he said, they don't even let you keep the Pipe Masters trophy. And he said, you know, some, some Hawaiian looked at him and says, you got to give it back, brah. And so he had to hand him back the, the, the trophy. And then he said, he still had the check, he says, which he needed. But he said, in that moment, he says, everyone's just walking away. And he finally reached the thing that he had always thirsted for in his life. And he found that his thirst was no more quenched after he won it than it was before. You know, we human beings are insatiably thirsty people, aren't we? You know, what are you thirsting for? You know, for some of us, we thirst for belonging. We just want to belong. We want somewhere where, where we can go and they are always glad you came and they know your name. We thirst for security. Some of us are just racked with fears and we just want, we want security and, and we're freaked out. You know, it seems like the culture is shifting around us so much and, and, and the world we once knew no longer exists and we just thirst, we hunger to have security and stability and something we can, we can stand upon. Some of us thirst just for love. We want to know that we're wanted, that people love us. We deeply thirst for love. Some thirst for approval. We just want, you know, we lack that maybe growing up from mom or from dad. And we just, you're just always operating. You just want somebody to say, attaboy, good job, you know. And there are people who are running Fortune 500 companies and they are just thirsting for approval. 
or we, we're, we're longing for meaning and significance. We just thirst to, to have some significance and meaning. And I think so often why people get involved in weird causes and weird conspiracy theories is because they feel like to participate in that, they're just, they're, they're thirsting to be in something bigger than themselves. And somebody seems to have an angle on that. And we're, we're thirsty to escape oftentimes the pain that we've known growing up. And we just want comfort. We are thirsty, thirsty humans. Where do you go to satiate your thirst? You know, we go to all kinds of places, don't we? You know, we we can look to success at school, of the college we get accepted in, or the, the, the success we have at work, or, you know, if you're a pastor at church, how good the next sermon is, and whether or not people think you're good enough or you're enough, and, and, and you just are thirsty. Like, where do you go to satiate the deep thirst in your soul? And some of us, it's like, it's like we keep turning to all of the wrong kind of places. You know, Jeremiah 2.13, one of my favorite passages in the Old Testament, puts that problem like this. God speaking over his people, he says, my people have committed two sins. They have forsaken me, the spring of living water, and have dug their own cisterns, broken cisterns that cannot hold water. You know what a cistern is? It's like a well. You dig a well and it's broken, and it can't hold water. And over here, there's this living water full of fresh, crisp, life-giving living water. And he says, my people keep turning away from me, the very source of living water, and they keep turning there to stuff that will never satiate their thirst. And listen, you keep going back to the same, and it, it can be any number of things you go through to, to say, she, you're, I need to be right, and I need my politician to get elected, because then I'll feel safe and okay and like I have a champion. I, I, need, I need to have success in the business, because then I'll feel like I finally made it, and I finally am worth something. You know, I, 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 I can preach a better sermon, you know, because then I'll feel like, I, you know, I perform well enough and people will like me and I just want to be liked. I thirst to be liked and they're so, and, and Jesus is saying, look, you are going to all of the wrong places to satiate the deep need in your heart. Your deep thirst, the deep thirst in your soul can only ultimately and finally be met in the living God. And the living God has come near to us. The Father has given the Son to bear our sin and shame, to open up a new way. And the Father and the Son have poured out the Spirit so that we can engage with God personally and closely. But here's the thing. When you drink from the wrong well, it's going to make you sick, right? I mean, I think the reason why so many of us are so anxious all the time and we're so fearful or we're full of outrage and anger or we're just trapped in our own cycles of unforgiveness and bitterness or we're stuck in our addictive patterns is because we keep going back to the same things that can never satiate our thirst. And all the while, there is living water available. 
All the while, there is living water available. Listen, what you drink from, it can make you sick, but what you drink from can also give you life. You know, when the water of God's personal presence comes into your life, when you turn away from the, what, what the Bible refers to as idols of the heart, those places you keep turning to in order to find satisfaction or approval or comfort or security, those things that are not ever going to provide you final and ultimate approval and love and belonging and security. Those things, it, when you keep turning, that's idolatry and it will never make you well. It will keep making you sick. You have to turn away from those things and turn to Jesus Jesus says, you need to come to me and drink, which means trusting in him for your belonging and for your love and for your identity and for your security and all that he is building your life and your identity on him, turning, finding your satiation and satisfaction on him. And you know what happens? Like stuff starts to come out of your life when you do that that's beautiful and good. Paul puts it like this in the book of Galatians, the fruit, the river that starts to flow out of your life is love and joy and peace and kindness and goodness and gentleness and self-control and faithfulness. Like this just starts to come out of your life because you are drinking, you are finding your security, your identity in Jesus and you're turning away from those things that only make you sick. Friends, this is not just theoretical. This is practical and a daily invitation to keep returning. You know, how often do you need to drink water? <laughs> Some of you are like, I need to drink every night. No. <laughs> I drink so much water throughout the day. Without water, your body's going to die. And without daily naming and turning away your heart from those broken cisterns and turning your life daily and regularly in surrender and entrusting yourself to Jesus and receiving his good news he has spoken over your life, friends, you will continue to be thirsty. And so may we attend to the voice of the Spirit that keeps inviting us to return. Let's pray together. Father, we approach you through your son, Jesus, whom you have given to us to open up a way of entry into your very presence. And we open up our lives afresh to your Holy Spirit whom you have poured out on your people so that in the giving of your spirit, 
we might experience the gift of your presence, the gift of your very self in our daily lives. God, would you enable us to have ears to hear your daily call to come back and to return and to surrender and to entrust ourselves to you. God, would you shine the light on those broken cisterns that do not hold water that we keep returning to. And God, may our hearts keep coming back to you, the source of living water. And in going to you, may we find renewal and new life in those places in our life where we feel barren and dry and God, where we need fertility and growth, God, would you come and would you invade those spaces and would you bring new life among us, we pray. And we ask this in Christ's name.